0: straight talk from israel you're listening to israel news talk radio you're listening to the jay shapiro show Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. As we approach the holiday of Shavuot and the summer, it's a good time to take stock of some things of importance that happened within the last year. Just this week it was reported that Israel signed a free trade agreement with the United Arab Emirates. This is of strategic importance to the economic relations between Israel and the UAE. What is most interesting is that the agreement received only secondary headlines and hardly got major coverage in the media, which means that relations between Israel and major nations in the Muslim world are becoming more common. This was unheard of two years ago, so we are witness to a tremendous amount of progress and Israel is being accepted as a regular player in the Middle East. Over the last several years, the Abraham Accords have given Israel legitimacy in the eyes of Muslim nations, many of which were formerly at war with Israel since 1948. These nations did it in their own interest. Israel has shown that it can build itself into a modern power despite the really bad conditions that it had when it first came into being back in 1948. And Israel has what to offer to these nations in many fields, including cutting-edge technology and defense. And now Iran has become a serious danger to these nations. And the Palestinians have disappointed these nations who no longer see what they can benefit from support of the Palestinians and what they can gain from support of Israel. So the Middle East and Israel's place in the Middle East is completely different than it was when Israel came into being a little over 70 years ago. We are witness to a situation that was unimaginable. Only a few years ago, a few years ago, and a situation which, thank God, is favorable to the Jewish state. I'll be back after the break. You're listening to the Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro, a subject which has been lying below the headlines has now come forward and it uh, will affect very much the future of Israel, I believe. That has to do with women serving in combat positions in the Israeli army. Now, women serve in the army, all my granddaughters have served or are serving in the army. As a matter of fact, one of my granddaughters is at present a major in the army very proud of her, so we believe that everybody has a responsibility to serve regardless of whether you're a man or a woman, but women in military uh, combat zones is something new. By the way, I've also served in the army, and I've uh, met a very large number of uh, female soldiers, most of whom do non-combat jobs. Right now, the Chief of Staff of Lieutenant General Aviv Kohavi approved the integration of women into combat roles in in Israel's uh, Air Force's elite group, which is called 669 Special Rescue Unit, which opens up additional combat units to women. This decision is based on a recommendation of a team that the Its chief of staff set up around two years ago in the wake of petitions to the Supreme Court calling for women to be admitted to elite units in the Israeli army. As with everything that has to do with women's service in the army, this has also been the subject of a perfectly timed campaign, framing the issue as a struggle between extremist and liberal women and orthodox rabbis' conservatism. The women are accused of being willing to sacrifice the country's security at the altar of equality, and the religious want to remind the public of the growing number of religious Zionist men serving in the army's officer ranks and frontline units. For example, Deputy Minister Matan Kahana warns that the Israeli army must not become an army of tribes concerned about a rift between the army and the religious Zionist rabbis against the backdrop of a concerted effort to integrate women into combat roles. That's what the deputy minister said. Indeed, some believe that Louis Chief of Staff's decision trouble really lies ahead because women groups and those calling for full gender equality will protest a relatively conservative approach. On the other hand, with decision to open up units that until now have been closed to women, he will be accused by religious Zionist leadership of surrendering to the female progressives and of dealing a scandalous blow to the military and Israel's security. So there is no solution that will satisfy everybody. Incidentally, this perspective is confirmed by public opinion data collected by the Israel Democracy Institute. Uh, the, uh, when a, a team was appointed to examine the issue, it revealed that only half of all the respondents believe that the team will focus solely on professional considerations, while the rest think that the team's decision will be influenced by pressure from external players, including women's groups on one side and rabbis on the other. But this is apparently not the heart of the matter. The question is not and must not be about this specific decision. According to Israeli law, Army units are to be open to women, except for those to which is not possible due to the character and substance of the role. Therefore, the only question on which the team was supposed to decide was, was which units women cannot serve in solely due to the nature of the task involved, and all other units should be open to them. Now, even here, it should be noted that the law relates to the right of women candidates to serve, and thus the only decision to be made should concern the individual capabilities of individual candidates and not the capabilities of women in general or the capabilities of what's considered to be the average woman, whatever that is. Even the deputy minister, Kahana, doesn't deny there's a hyper-probability that at least one young woman in Israel is capable of serving in what's called the Sayeret Matkal, the General Staff Reconnaissance Unit, which is the real elite. So the, the army needs to supply a convincing explanation to why it does now allow women who are capable of doing so to serve in these elite units. There may well be a valid reason, maybe that in terms of proportionality, the investment required would exceed a reasonable cost relative to the number of women expected to meet the unit's requirements. But as long as the army does not offer such an explanation, it's failing to follow the letter of the law. Now, the truth of the matter is, basically, the Israeli army is obligated to protect the dignity of all soldiers who are serving, the dignity of men and of women, including religious soldiers bound by Jewish law relating to sexual modesty and gender separation. That's precisely why the Joint Service Order was issued to facilitate service in accordance with various Jewish law requirements, that is what's called halachic requirements, and even to enable those who demand it to serve in gender-separate groups. Um, by the way, I mean, um, uh, my grandchildren have served in uh, combat units, uh, but they're all they're gender-exclusive, they're all men. Once this order was given the rabbi's blessing and following the adoption of the strict norms and those applied to other public arenas, it's unacceptable according to many people, that the question of whether women may serve in the commando unit, for example, should be met with the question of how integrating women affects religious soldiers. Dozens of articles warning of a rift between religious Zionism and the army because of this issue cannot change this basic fact. Uh, according to many people, under no circumstances can there be any justification for a female candidate to be told, though you have all the requisite capabilities to serve in, for example, a reconnaissance unit, we can't allow you to do so because otherwise religious soldiers will not apply for service in that unit. That—that uh, That is a really tough decision because if religious soldiers are kept out of units because of that problem, they're gonna lose a lot of soldiers, really a lot. Recently, a broader public debate has emerged over the principle of equality and the need to enshrine it in legislation. It may take time for this to happen. However, even with without a basic law, the right to equality remains one of the most fundamental rights in a democracy. But it's not an absolute right, and it must sometimes be balanced against other values. Infringing rights may only be a last resort. There's a slogan used in various army units, what's difficult we do immediately, what's impossible takes a little longer. The the same uh, ethos should be applied to the current challenge facing the chief of the general staff. Any military that's able to carry out the operations that the Israeli army performs, according to many people, should be able to ensure true gender equality in its ranks. It's entirely possible, according to many people, and also it's the right thing to do, according to many people. Now that's a very, very tough decision. Uh, I myself have served in the army, I know what it means to be out in the field uh, without all the basic necessities of life. And uh, you know women have different needs than men do and uh, to put men and women into a du- difficult physical uh, situation uh, c- could result in many religious soldiers simply not wanting to serve in those kind of units where they will run into problems. My my, uh, granddaughter, for example, is a major in the Army, and she serves in the Kiriyah, which is in the heart of Tel Aviv. It's the Army's headquarters. And uh, essentially, she goes to work as a regular job, a workplace. She goes in the morning, does her job, and returns back to her apartment in the evening. There's no sleeping out in the field with other women or with other men. And women, of course, have other basic physical needs that it's hard to meet in the field. So this, this uh, situation, this subject, may become uh, a difficult one for Israel to handle if the women's groups push really hard for what they consider equality. Tell you the truth, I think that the word equality uh, really isn't well defined, uh, and uh, I myself, as I said, I've served out, out in the field, and uh, I know what it's like to uh, be in a situation where you don't have the, uh, the meet the necessities uh, and the comforts of home, and for women uh, to be stuck in that kind of position together with men could lead to a lot of trouble, particularly for religious soldiers. So uh, it's a subject which is under the headlines at the moment, and may rise up and cause trouble here in Israel. I'll be back after the break. so join me, Steve Miller, and me, Matt Zucker, for a lighting up every Monday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 5 p.m. Israel, only on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. Uh, in this portion of the program, I want to touch upon a number of items not related to each other, but I think that they, they're they under the headlines and you don't really see these things. And they describe what's happening in Israel and the Jewish world. Uh, so I share them with the listeners. At the beginning of the week, there was a Jerusalem Day and tens of thousands of people came and marched in Jerusalem and they went into the Old City and they went to the, uh, the Western Wall. Uh, interestingly enough, the, um, it was, there, there's something sad about it. Jerusalem Day uh, is, um, it commemorates the fact that in the war in 1967, Jerusalem was captured by the Israeli army it became under Jewish control for the first time in about 2,000 years, and one would think that it's something that should be celebrated by all of Israel, and of course by all the Jewish people, but for some reason or other, and that's a problem unto itself, Jerusalem Day is only celebrated in Jerusalem. Uh, I spoke with my granddaughter, who lives in Tel Aviv, and she told me that you would never notice such a thing as Jerusalem if you walked the streets of uh, Tel Aviv during that day, which I think, by the way, is very sad. Uh, It's also sad is the fact that the overwhelming number of people coming to Jerusalem and celebrating Jerusalem Day are young people from the religious Zionist sector of our society. Very few non-religious people are involved, and I think that says something negative about the Israeli education system. But that's a uh, thought unto itself. Now, the, the thing I wanted to share with the listeners was a news item that said that uh, a majority of the Jewish population of Jerusalem is either what's called Haredi, which is ultra-Orthodox. I'm not quite sure how that is defined, but I think they, people generally define Haredi by the way people dress. Uh, the point remains that the majority of Jewish people in Jerusalem is either ultra-Orthodox or re- lead a religious lifestyle. All this is according to a new report by Israel's Central Bureau of Statistics which was released just ahead of Jerusalem Day last week. According to the index, 35% of Jerusalem's Jewish residents identify as Haredi, ultra-Orthodox, 35%, and a further 25% consider themselves to be observant Jews, so that makes a total of uh, about uh, almost 60% of residents identify as religious in one form or another. In contrast, fewer than one in five residents, about 18%, identify as secular Jews. Now Jerusalem is now the biggest city in Israel. It has a population of 936,000 as of 2019, almost a million, which is 10% of the entire population of Israel according to data gathered by the Jerusalem Institute. Jews represent a majority in Jerusalem, with about 590,000 Jewish Jewish residents, accounting for a little over 61% of Jerusalem's population. The Arab population of the capital, Jerusalem, stands at about 375,000 or close to 40%. I think that it's an interesting number. 40% of the people who in Jerusalem uh, within the boundaries of the municipality of Jerusalem are Arabs. Uh, here in, in Jerusalem, you know, one is accustomed to seeing Arabs all over, uh, either, you know, on the buses or behind counters or serving coffee or whatever. They, they're a part of the... Um, Of the capital. You don't see Arabs so much in places like Tel Aviv. The Central Bureau of Statistics also published Jerusalem immigration numbers both from abroad as well as from within Israel. And according to the Central Bureau of Statistics, almost 14,000 new residents came to Jerusalem in 2021, including almost 4,000 new immigrants from around the globe. This number was likely inflated because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which led to more than 21,000 eligible Ukrainians, Russians, and Belarusians to immigrate under the law of return. So that's sort of an an odd situation. Jerusalem's growing population numbers are also aided by, believe it or not, an above-average birth rate. The number of children per household, on average, in Jerusalem, stands at 3.79, which is significantly higher than the Israeli average of 2.9. By the way, the Jewish uh, the increase in uh, Jewish fertility, uh, if once once you increase uh, by more than 2.1 child per family then you maintain your population. If you go above 2.1, you increase your population. Israel is one of the few countries which has an increasing population. And as I said, in Jerusalem, the 3.79 is really a significant number. From within Israel, Jerusalem has seen a large influx of residents from other places, that religious places like B'nai B'rach and Beit Shemesh. The uh, these are two areas that are mostly populated by populated by religious Jews. The Beit Shemesh, which is about uh, 30 miles away from Jerusalem, is a popular destination for many residents who have left Jerusalem, along with Tel Aviv and an area called Beitar Elite, Elit, which is a uh, ultra orthodox settlement a little bit uh, south of Jerusalem near uh, Bethlehem. And that's a uh, ultra-Orthodox settlement. Jerusalem is transitioning into a city that has more than a wall in its heart. Uh, this is a comment made by uh, Mayor Jerusalem, Moshe, Moshe Leon. Uh, this is how reacted to the uh, report that I just uh, shared with the listeners. So, uh, uh, Jerusalem, bottom line, Jerusalem's Jewish residents are becoming more religious. Uh, What what that means for the future, I don't know. But I wanted to share it with the listeners. I want to turn to the topic that, um, if you will, Palestinianism is spreading throughout the world. What I mean is support of Palestine. It's it's spreading around the world, and it's particularly uh, vicious in the uh, uh, campuses in the United States. The... uh, it, the people support it because it presents itself as a national liberation movement that seeks to free itself from Israeli occupation and oppression and persecution. However, an examination of the true agenda is available. All you have to do, go on the Internet, look up the PLO Covenant, the Hamas Charter, and the daily messages. It, re- it reveals the true intention, isolating and destroying Israel. In other words, a second holocaust, if they could. This explains why efforts to achieve a peaceful solution like the Oslo Accords have failed. Unwittingly, they call for a two-state solution, Palestinian state in Judea and Samaria, in addition to Jordan, which may consider to be or should be the already existing second state. There's this confusion about why Palestinian leaders have rejected such proposals, Unfortunately, there seems to be an unwillingness to accept the reality of what Palestinianism means and what is at stake, not only for Israel, but for the entire world. The first time the concept of urge and soil, the land of Israel, seen as a land which God gave to the Jewish people, is in the Torah. It's confirmed by all the Jewish texts and Judaism. There is no such concept in Christianity or Islam. These religions have holy places, but they have no holy land. Palestinianism denies this historical fact, denies the right of the Jewish people to re-establish a state in the land of Israel. Now, Palestinianism presents a danger not only to Israel, but also to Islam. By focusing on Jerusalem as a holy city and the Temple Mount as holy and exclusively for Muslims, rather than the traditional holy cities of Medina and Mecca, is not only a historical, but has no basis in the Quran or in the writings of Islamic scholars. It uses Islam and Islamic references to legitimize violence and genocide. Uh, the uh, Those who support Palestinian self-determination and a so-called two-state solution therefore must consider what this means. Understand why all the efforts to resolve the conflict have failed. How would a second Palestinian state, in addition to Jordan, resolve the Arab refugee problem? How would a state resolve the issue of millions of Arabs living in UN towns and villages? in addition to millions who live in a region around the world and consider themselves to be Palestinians." I, my my uh, belief is that Jordan should be recognized as the Palestinian homeland. What is a humanitarian solution? What makes sense? They're not going to have a state whose goal would be to destroy the state of Israel. Palestinianism is a word, which I just saw it for the first time about two weeks ago, and that's what it is. It's essentially a global intifada against the state of Israel and against the Jewish people. That's something I think we we should be aware of I'll be back after the break You're back with Jay Shapiro. In this segment of the program, I want to touch upon several items that are under the headlines, but I think they're important for the listeners to know about. The items are not related. The first one has to do with something that occurred shortly I came on, after I came on Aliyah to Israel. Three Japanese members of a communist group, trained by the uh, PFLP, which is the Palestinian Marxist-Leninist group. They launched an attack at Ludd Airport in 1972, throwing grenades and firing with automatic rifles. And they killed eight Israelis, 17 Puerto Rican Christian pilgrims, a Canadian citizen, and they killed a prominent Israeli scientist, Aharon Katsir. Katsir was the elder brother of Ephraim Katsir, who became the president of Israel a year later. They claimed that the actual target was Katsir, and the rest of the people were killed as, um, I don't know exactly what you call it, but uh, secondary um, Uh, uh, victims. The sole surviving um, uh, member of the group of three terrorists who did this was a guy named Kozo Okamoto. And uh, he was released after a period of time, I don't recall recall how how long, Uh, he said in his trial that the intent was to target passengers, visitors, and police he served over a decade in prison. He was released in a prisoner exchange. And according to the Associated Press, he's reportedly still in Lebanon, and he's wanted by Japanese authorities. By the way, the pres- the scientist Aaron Katsir, who was killed, was the person that at the time they spoke about as being the, actually the person they wanted to become the president of Israel. And uh, after he was assassinated at the airport, uh, as his form of compensation, his brother Ephraim became the president of Israel. So this happened shortly after, after I came to live in Israel. And uh, the name uh, Kozo Okamoto, it seared into my memory. Now, Palestinian activists celebrated the end of the prison term of a woman named uh, Fusaka Shigenobu, it doesn't mean much to anybody. I was not aware of the name myself. She was the co-founder of the Japanese Red Army Terrorist Organization who coordinated with the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine to uh, set up that, the 1972 Lode Airport Massacre that killed 26 and injured a dozen and the, now what happened is, is she's been released from jail and uh, the Palestinian youth movement is celebrating and uh, saying that Palestinians everywhere salute and celebrate her for her extraordinary dedication to our national struggle and her friendship with our people. The, um, they had a live stream uh, celebration uh, uh, last week when she was released and it's interesting, uh, upon her release, this terrorist and her daughter dressed in Palestinian kefir scarves uh, in a video seen published by May Shiganova, her daughter. She's been involved with Palestinian terrorist groups for decades and uh, was the founder of the group that carried out the Lut attack back in 1972. The point I wanted to make with all of this is really under the headlines. These are names I'm sure most of the listeners are not familiar with. But here's a woman who was a terrorist, killed innocent people, and she's given the red carpet treatment by the Palestinians, uh, in particular, the Popular front for the liberation of Palestine. So the it's interesting the uh, that this kind of person is celebrated by the Palestinians, which indicates if if, if 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 and proof is needed that we cannot make peace with Palestinians. These people are people who celebrate people who massacre innocents. And people say we have to sit down with the PLO and the other terrorist organizations, Palestinian terrorist organization, and give them part of our land. All you need is several news items like this to tell us and make us aware that there's simply no peace to be had with these people. Now, I want to move on to a totally different topic, a totally different time, more interesting topic, I believe. On February 6th this year, Queen Elizabeth II of England becomes the first British monarch to celebrate a platinum jubilee marking 70 years uh, of service to her people. Uh, So to celebrate this anniversary, events and initiatives will take place on a four-day UK bank holiday, celebrations, public events, community activities, national moments of reflection. Um, Elizabeth is the longest reigning incumbent monarch, and the longest reigning female monarch in recorded history. She's the third longest reigning monarch of a sovereign state, two years less than Louis XIV of France, and currently just 113 days less than Rama IX of Thailand. That's somebody I bet you never heard of. Both of whom ruled until their deaths in 1715 and 2016, respectively. What's interesting is that the United Kingdom's Chief Rabbi Ephraim Mervis has written a special prayer for this unique historical event. Uh, I don't want to go into the details, uh, but I guess it's very interesting that the the Queen has reached this date, uh, this anniversary, and the Chief Rabbi has written a special prayer to honor her, and I think that's really nice. One of the things the prayer says is to grant wisdom and understanding. And so uh, that's very nice. So uh, the, there was a time years ago, I don't, I don't remember the exact dates, when no Jews were allowed into, the, into Britain. And about 400 years ago, I think it was. I don't recall the, the uh, history. But right now you have a chief rabbi honoring the queen uh, with a special prayer. I think that's nice. really. It really is. And now to move on to the next item, which is uh, under the headlines. Here's an item that's really under the headlines. You have very very difficult finding it. It appeared in an Israeli newspaper, a little article on page 3. It said the head of the World Zionist Organization met with the Russian ambassador to Israel at, at the Russian embassy in Tel Aviv, and presented him a special report regarding the location of Jewish heritage sites in Ukraine. The uh, the World Zionist Organization chairman expressed deep sorrow for the damage to human life during the fighting and hope for an end to the fighting and the human suffering as soon as possible. But they want to avoid the great risk of damaging Jewish heritage sites in Ukraine. So they created this map following a special field survey conducted recently by the World Zionist Organization. As the fighting is going on, the survey examined the conditions of the Jewish heritage sites in Ukraine, and these sites include monuments to Holocaust victims in Babi Yar and Donotsk and Jewish cemeteries, synagogues, tombs of the righteous, and other sites of historic importance to the Jews. The, the World Zionist Organization did an inspection that um, showed that a number of the sites have already been damaged and many are at risk of unintentional damage due to the fighting that's going on now. So at the end of the meeting between the head of the World Zionist Organization, the Russian ambassador to Israel, the ambassador, his name is Anatoly Viktorov, he said he would forward the report to Moscow immediately. Uh, and uh, so uh, Ukraine, he said, the Russian ambassador said, Ukraine is of the most important and sensitive heritage sites for the Jewish people. And we feel a responsibility to uh, to maintain them, which is nice. Then, one final thought before I end the program. And the final item, and I can't go into the details because it's essentially a secret the country's spy satellites, Israel's two spy satellites, and two other classified projects have been awarded the Israel Defense Prize, which is the country's top security prize. but there are only other on, only twelve other countries with satellite launching capabilities like like Israel, the satellite industry is a key component of the Jewish state's strategic military capabilities. Though the exact number of Israeli satellites in orbit remains classified, they're reported to number in the double digits. And while most satellites have a lifetime of several operational years, the ones built by Israel Aircraft Industries, where I used to work and I was involved in those things, they were launched back in 2002. So that's almost 20 years, longer than the design specifications said it would So these satellites serve the defense establishment 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, and provide quality and reliable intelligence in real time. So little Israel, which uh, back in 1948 hardly had an Air Force, has some really, really sophisticated satellites that help keep us safe. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.